John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself, alone. In John chapter 6, we're going to see two impressive, impossible miracles. Jesus will feed 5,000 with five barley loaves and two small fish, and Jesus will defy gravity and walk on water. Of all the miracles recorded in the New Testament, the feeding of the 5,000 is found in all four Gospels. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. In Mark chapter 6, verse 32 through 44. And in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. This is the fourth sign in John's Gospel and John presents this sign to the reader, inviting us to think about, to consider the message of Jesus and the claims of Christ. Of all of the miracles that Jesus does, certainly they're all impressive, but this one perhaps is the most impressive, other than his resurrection, his physical resurrection from the dead. The reason, because it displays his Power and his majesty, and literally thousands of people witnessed this extraordinary miracle. Now, our story unfolds in four scenes there's a fickle crowd, there is some faithless disciples, there's a fulfilling dinner, and then there's a false coronation. In these four scenes, we're, we're going to uncover certain things about faith. Number one, perspectives of faith in verses 1 through 6. Pessimistic faith in verse 7. 
optimistic but questioning faith in in verses 8 and 9, positive, unswerving faith in verses 10 through 13, and then what we would call a substandard or a less than perfect faith in verses 14 and 15. Now, many people come to church for any number of reasons. Some people come to church to study the Bible. Some people come to church to worship. Some people come to church. We might as well get used to it because they're religious people. That's what religious people do. They go to church. Religious people like to do religious things. They like to participate in religious activities. There are typically two kinds of people who come to our church. Those who come because they really, really, really want to be here. And then there are those who come because they have to be here. Because their mother, their father, their make them. Their conscience makes them. They, they feel that they have to come to church in order to gain brownie points with God. They love religious activities. They love Jesus to be the Lord on Sunday, but then on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, they pretty much live lives that are pretty much estranged from God. Augustine of Hippo said, Do not seek to understand in order that you may believe, but believe that you might understand. Benjamin Franklin said, The way to see by faith is to shut the eyes of reason. But is that true? Blaise Pascal rightly observed, Faith affirms what the senses do not affirm, but not the contrary of what they perceive. It is above and not contrary to it. We as Christians understand that God has given us a mind to think with and a heart to feel with and a will to make decisions. But the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And remember what faith is. It's the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Faith makes us able to have friendship and relationship with God. Do you realize it's easier to walk on water? It is easier to feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes than it is to change your heart. It's more easy to perform this miracle than it is to take a heart of wickedness and unbelief and selfishness and self-righteousness and transform it and change it. By the way, that's part of the point of this message. It's easier for you to feed 5,000 with next to nothing. It's going to be easier for you to walk on water than it is to take a sinner and make them a saint. To take that which is unclean and make it clean. To take that which is unrighteous and make it righteous. To take that which is unacceptable and make it acceptable to God. But do you realize that's exactly what Jesus does for you? He loves you. He forgives you. He makes it possible for you to have a right relationship with God. He makes the impossible possible. By the way, when you hear the word impossible, what do you think about? 
Does a definition come to your mind? Not possible. Unable to exist. It can't work. We use terms like unbelievable, incredible, not plausible. It doesn't add up. There's not enough. We live in a world of atheism and unbelief and skepticism and pessimism. It permeates our culture and our thinking. My, my grandma was one of those ladies who grew up during the time of the Depression. And she always had clever things to say. My granny would say, you can't get blood out of a turnip. She would say, you can't make a silk purse from a cow or from a pig's ear. And she was one of those ladies who would watch TV. And, you know, when the stir up the Campbell's soup commercial came on, stir up the Campbell's soup is good food. My granny would go, soup ain't good food. Soup's what you eat when you ain't got good food. It was impossible to pull anything over on my granny. Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. That's what it says in Matthew 17, 21. In Mark 9, 23, Jesus said, if you can believe All things are possible to him who believes. He's not talking about simply believing. He's talking about the confidence that comes that you are willing to believe the message of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the promises of Jesus, the demonstrations of power of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. Let me guess what might be on your impossible list or impossible circumstances. Let me guess. You help me out. Let's see. What's on the impossible list for you? Well, my job. My job is impossible. It's impossible to please my boss. It's impossible to get this done. My job is impossible. We're in a recession. Things look very, very bad. Your marriage, your finances, your illness, your thought life, your real life. your internal circumstances. What's going on inside of you. And for some of you, you might feel like it's impossible to walk with God. It's impossible to know God. It's impossible to live the kind of life that God wants you to live. All of those things seem impossible. But here's the deal. The impossible becomes possible The moment that you include Jesus, let's look. Perspectives of faith. Look at verse 1 in chapter 6. After these things, metatauta, after these things that we've seen in John chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. We've already seen Jesus has turned water into wine. Jesus has healed a nobleman's son from a distance. Jesus has healed a man in Bethlehem. At the, at the pool of Bethesda, who's been sick for 38 years. He has been walking and talking and ministering and preaching and teaching. He's imparted things to the disciples. They've been casting out demons. He's been opening blind eyes and deaf ears, and a multitude is gathered together. As a matter of fact, in verse 2, it says, Then a great multitude 
followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. Verse 2 gives us the motive of the following. Make no mistake about it. These are religious people. The multitudes are people who are preparing for the Passover. These are men and women who go to the temple. These are men and women who give to the poor. These are men and women who go here and there and who participate in sacrifices and religious activities. But they're following Jesus because they've seen the signs which he's performed and they are impressed. But remember, remember, they're following him for all of the wrong reasons. They're following them for what Jesus can do for them. They're following them in the hopes that they might see a miracle. They're following him not because they're sorry for their sin. They're following him not because they want to get rid of their sin. They're following him not because they want to repent of their sin. They're not, they're not following him because they want him as their Lord and their Savior. They're following him because they want a meal ticket. And it says in verse 3, And Jesus went up on the mountain. And there he sat with his disciples. We know from the other Gospels that he starts in Capernaum. He goes across the Sea of Galilee. He goes to the eastern side of the shore where the mouth of the Jordan River empties into the Sea of Galilee. And then he goes about two miles north of there. And then he goes into the mountain, and and I know this sounds rude, to ditch the multitude. He's trying to ditch them. And as he's trying to ditch them, he goes and he sits with his disciples. And look at verse 4. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. It was the most important feast because it celebrated the liberation of the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. It was the biggest religious celebration on the Jewish calendar. Just like resurrection is the biggest religious celebration on the Christian calendar. And we usually have religious celebrations before that. We have Palm Sunday, like today. And for some of you, this is really, really annoying because you want a message about Palm Sunday. You want Jesus marching into Jerusalem, and you want the palms. Sorry. Passover for the Jew was like the 4th of July for us. It was a time of celebration when the lights and the, and the fireworks would go off, and there was a sense of profound Jewish nationalism. As a matter of fact, D.A. Carson writes, the Passover feast was to Palestinian Jews what the 4th of July is to Americans. It was a rallying point for intense national fervor. And look at verse 5, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Again, Jesus lifts up his eyes with compassion. And I want you to understand something. The crowd is following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And he still cares about them. The crowd is following Jesus because they want a meal ticket. They want something empty filled. They want something broken, fixed. They're following them. They're following him. And before you get to the end of the chapter, they're going to abandon him. And he still cares about them. He still has mercy on them and compassion for them. He profoundly, deeply, 
specifically, personally, cares for each and every person who has come. We know that he's been teaching and preaching and ministering and the people have come and they don't have anything to eat. There's no McDonald's. There's no uh, Burger King. There's no fast food restaurants nearby. And we know from Matthew's Gospel that as these crowds have gathered, the, the disciples have said to Jesus, send them away. And Matthew's Gospel says, you, you feed them. And he says to Philip, that question, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? The question wasn't meant to embarrass or humiliate or demean Philip. It was meant to build his faith. It was meant to grow him up. It was meant to mature him so that he would trust the Lord Jesus. But I'm sure that that this was more than just a little bit frustrating for Philip. Have you ever had Jesus pick on you? I need you to trust me in a particular area. Wait a minute. Why can't this be... Peter or James or John's test. Why would you want to test me? Do you ever get frustrated? Why is this happening to me? Why is this taking place? Now, again, I know I get frustrated. I was preparing this message and I'm almost done with my outline. And I'm getting ready to hit the period at the end of my notes. And this morning, my computer crashes. It just goes off, just like in those Mac and PC commercials where it just sort of falls asleep. And I'm going, Jesus. It's going to be a miracle if this thing survives. Lord, I could really use my notes. And I turn it back on, and thank God it came back on. Jesus asks the question. By the way, whenever you're reading the Bible, particularly the New Testament, and Jesus asks questions, is it ever because he doesn't really know the answer? He always knows the answer to the question. And this may be the only place in the New Testament where Jesus asks advice. Of his disciples. Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? McDonald's? Chick-fil-A? No. These things don't exist. And look at verse 6. But this he said, note, to test him. To test Philip. For he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus knew how he was going to take care of the problem. But he was wondering whether or not they were going to include him in the process. And for many of you, that's exactly the same kind of test you're facing right at this very moment. Because the question continues to be, are you going to trust God? Are you going to trust Jesus in the particular test, in the particular circumstance that you find yourself in? By the way, the word test or or prove is, is an interesting word in the original language. It's the Greek word parazo. And the word can mean, number one, to test. That means to see if, if, 
if it's going to work. Number two, to prove by testing, that means you put something under a rigorous test to make sure that it will work under pressure, a kind of a quality assurance. And number three, it can mean to approve. That is the result of the test, that once the test has been successfully completed, that you have passed the test. I think in this particular instance, it's number one. It's a test, just like it is for many of you. It's a test to see whether or not you'll continue to pray, to continue to hope, to continue to trust. And so John sets the stage. Will Philip trust? Chuck Swindoll, in his wonderful book, Following Christ, the Man of God, he writes, Great opportunities are often disguised as unsolvable problems. Jesus and his disciples try to get away, but a needy crowd takes precedence. Let's watch as a humanly unsolvable problem becomes a great opportunity when seen from a divine standpoint. And by the way, that seems to be the way life is. They're broken down into two categories in our life. Things that I can do for myself and things that I can never do for myself. Things that are seen from a divine perspective and things that are seen from a human perspective. And so in the explanation for he himself knew what he was intending to do, you might be experiencing the test and you may not understand the test. You may be angry with the test. You may be upset or frustrated by the test because your circumstances seem dire and harsh and unbearable and overwhelming. You don't understand how I feel. No, maybe I don't. You don't know the dark and empty spot that's inside of me. You're right, I don't, but God does. You don't know the overwhelming guilt that I experience. I know I don't necessarily, but God does. How can something so black become light? How can something so dark and empty become full? How can something so broken be made whole? How can something so guilty be made clean? We have a king. We have a Lord. We have a Savior, Jesus, and He's seeking our best and our highest. James talks about it in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 and 4, when he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The test is meant to grow you and strengthen you. So how do you see your trial? Do you view it as an unexpected pressure or an unexpected pleasure? Because you will grow and you will learn. Look at the pessimistic faith in verse 7. Philip answers him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have just a little. One Bible teacher suggests Philip has a calculator for a brain. Okay, you, you asked me the question, how are we going to do this? Let's do the math. And like an accountant, Philip goes to his Excel program. He calculates the spreadsheet and he goes, okay, according to my calculations, 
If we had 200 denarii, maybe, just maybe, everyone could have just a little. And by the way, a denarius was a day's wage for a skilled labor. A denarius, with a denarius, you could buy two glasses of wine. You could buy a loaf of bread, and you could buy a place to stay. And so, Philip goes, 200 denarii. That would be maybe enough for just a little for each of them. However, we don't have anywhere near that amount, but we do have just enough for, well, you and me and the other 11 apostles. Woohoo! Isn't that interesting? The ledger doesn't reveal the infinite wealth and power of God who owns the earth and all of its contents. Now, trust me, trust me, trust me. Everybody has a Philip in their life. Everyone has a person who does the math, who adds up the numbers, and it doesn't add up. And we thank God for those people. Except when what you really need is not just numbers, but faith. So what do you think? How is Philip doing on the test? Certainly he sees the situation, but he's unable to see the solution. He calculates the cost, but he refuses to look at the people that Jesus has called him to care for. And finally, he calculates only based on the bare minimum. Just enough for everyone to receive a little. Two disciples take the test. One is appointed, the other one volunteers. The volunteer is Andrew. While Philip is doing the math, Andrew is going on a scavenger hunt for groceries. Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Andrew volunteers for the test. He does a little bit better because at least Andrew is looking for a solution. But here is the problem. Even with that solution, it is a human solution. It's a solution that doesn't calculate the father and it doesn't include the son. It is a solution that doesn't include faith. And then, of course, the big but... There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But, remember I'm going to come out with a book called The Big Butts in the Bible. In the first service, there was a little girl sitting over there and she goes, You can't say but in church. And I said, You know, it's really all about the context. Andrew looks at the situation, and he objects. But let's take a quick look at the kid's lunch. You have to understand something. Barley bread is cheap bread. No self-respecting Roman soldier would eat barley except under the most dire of extreme circumstances. Romans ate barley only when they had to, because it wasn't real food. It was what you gave to animals. We're talking about five Flat 
loaves that would have been the size of a tiny tortilla. We're talking about two small pieces of dried fish that would have looked more like a sardine. If you're imagining Rubio's fish tacos, you're wrong. The barley is about the same size. The fish, the fish is about the same size. Imagine, now think about everyone who is in the sanctuary right now, and then multiply that by about seven or eight times. Imagine I have one combo special from Rubio's, and we all have to eat it. That's not possible. That's not possible. Philip sees the impossible circumstances and says, that's not in our budget. And Andrew sees the same circumstance and says, that's not in our pantry. The problem? Neither looked at Jesus. Neither of them looked to Jesus. And remember what has already happened. Jesus has turned water into wine. Jesus has heard, uh, has healed the nobleman's son from a distance. Jesus has opened blind eyes and deaf ears. Jesus has been by the pool of Bethesda and healed a person who's been sick for 38 years. Jesus has walked and ministered and cast out demons and healed lepers. He's done the most extraordinary things. But neither one of them looked at Jesus. And you know what's interesting? The same seems to be true in our case, isn't it? Jesus has forgiven your sin. Jesus has removed your iniquity. And Jesus has promised you heaven instead of hell. And Jesus has done so much. What is it? Why is it? How is it that you forgot about the power of God? And the young man gave Andrew something cheap what most of us would account as worthless. It's easy to give God our best. It's easy to give God our talents. It's easy to give God our treasure. If you have a great voice, it's great to sing for the Lord. If you have a musical gift, it's great to play for the Lord. You might have money, and it's great to give to the Lord. And we we tend to, to focus on the great gifts and the callings that God has placed in our life, and we want to give that to God, but we're reluctant to give Him our weakness, and we're reluctant to give Him our depression, and we're 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 very reluctant to give him our failure. We don't want to give him that which is weak and wicked. We don't want to give him our failures. Some of you are faced with impossible circumstances right now. You look at the bank account and there's nothing in your cupboard. Remember the old rhyme when we were kids? Old Mother Hubbard went to get to the cupboard to give her poor dog a bone, and when she got there, the cupboard was bare, and I can't even remember the rest of it. Thank you. Old Mother Hubbard. We go and we look, and we look to the left, and we look to the right, but we don't look at Jesus. He's the bread of life. Jesus can do exceeding abundantly above all that that we ask or think. And, And look what it says in verse 10. Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. I remember reading that in 1969 thinking, Cool. It's in the Bible. There is much grass in this place. 
But again, it's all about context. He was talking about a place for a lot of people to sit down. And Jesus causes the people to be to sit down into manageable groups. And, and you have to understand something. According to Jewish custom, women and children rarely, if ever, ate with men in, in a public place. In the Jewish culture and society of the first century, the men ate together and the women and the children ate together. And in verse 11, look what it says. And Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. That's the miracle. But before we get to the miracle, I want to draw your attention to something. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks. Isn't that outrageous? Thanks? What weirdo gives thanks for something that doesn't even exist? Imagine 5,000 people. Lord, I thank you for this Rubio's fish taco. And I thank you that there's going to be more than enough for everyone in the sanctuary filled five times over. And people are snickering. What kind of a fool, what kind of a charlatan gives thanks for that which doesn't even exist? The Bible says, give thanks to God in all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. The Bible says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The Bible calls us to be men and women of gratitude and expectation. Not for everything that we want, but for everything that we have and everything that God is going to give. He says, give thanks. And this is the outrageousness of what's happening. How do you give thanks? When you have to bury your babies died prematurely? How do you give thanks when your husband has left you or your wife is gone? How do you give thanks when the depression and the emptiness and the loneliness and the darkness wells up inside of you and it takes every ounce of your willpower just to stay alive? How do you ask God to bless food when you don't even believe the food is there. But then the unthinkable happens. The unimaginable happens. Make no mistake about it, it is a miracle. I have over 26 commentaries on the, on the Gospel of John, and one commentator said, well, at this particular point in time, the 5,000 people, when the kid broke open his lunch, everybody else broke open their lunch, and it was a miracle of selflessness as everybody decided to share. What a, what a lie. Make no mistake about it, it's a, it's a miracle. It's a full 100% miracle. Because the only way that those people were going to be fed is Jesus was going to have to feed them. And the only way that you're going to change, the only way that you're going to be different, the only way that you're going to be forgiven, the only way you're going to be guilt-free, the only way that you're going to be what God wants you to be is if Jesus changes you, transforms you, miraculously changes you. 
Jesus then doesn't just give a little. Just enough for everyone. But note what it says. He gave as much as they wanted. Well, everybody broke open their lunch. No, this is a miracle. And even though Philip failed to see with the eyes of faith, guess what? His failure didn't frustrate God's work, and that's part of the message. Philip was doing the math. Andrew was looking in the pantry. Neither one of them were trusting Jesus, but Jesus had a plan, and Jesus had a purpose, and Jesus' plan and purpose included that those people were going to be fed, and Jesus has a plan, and Jesus has a purpose, and His plans and His purposes aren't based on your failure and your unbelief. You might pray, and you go, Oh, Lord, I'm praying for my mom, and she's a good and decent person, and I know she can be saved, and I'm praying for my dad, and he's most of the time a good and decent person. Well, not often, but but sometimes he is in my brother. Oh, forget him, Lord. He's impossible. People like my brother can't be saved. And then God shows up. And he saves my brother. In spite of my refusal to pray for him and in spite of my unbelief. And the word filled means glutted. It means like all-you-can-eat buffet, and you eat, and you can't eat anymore. In verse 12, it says, So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. In verse 13, Therefore they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Think about a laundry basket that will hold about 50 pounds of laundry. How do you go from one fish taco to 12 baskets full of fish tacos? The work of Jesus goes on. Therefore, they gathered them up and they filled up the baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. The disciples' failure and the disciples' lack of faith still meant that Jesus was going to go forward in a sustained ministry. The work of Jesus go on. We may go through seasons of failure. We might have lapses of faith. We might have momentary failure, but Jesus is greater than our failure, and He refuses to be frustrated by our lack of faith. That's good news. The work of Jesus will go forward. People will continue to be saved. And people will continue to be healed. And the kingdom will be advanced. And Jesus will pour out His Spirit. And Jesus will proclaim the Gospel. And Jesus will continue to transform lives. And look at verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who's come into the world. Well, that's good news, right? Jesus is the true prophet who's come into the world. But why won't Jesus accept their support? I mean, isn't this what Jesus was looking for? Finally, they're getting it. They're believing Him. Leslie Newbigin writes, and I quote, 
The crowd had followed Jesus because they saw him as a healer, as one who could satisfy their needs. The feeding confirms their opinion. Moses, who had led Israel out of slavery and had called down manna from heaven, had promised that the Lord would send another prophet like himself who would speak God's word. That's Deuteronomy 18.15. And it seemed to have been a common belief that he also would bring down manna from heaven. Jesus must be this promised prophet, this long awaited day of a new deliverance is at hand. The enthusiasm of the crowd rises. They will seize him forthwith and make him their leader, unquote. They're religious people and they want a religious leader. And they want physical and social and cultural and economic freedom and they want Jesus to be their king. Look at verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, He departed again to the mountain by himself, alone. The crowd, stuffed with fish tacos, wanting to use Jesus to meet their own ends. But you know what they don't want? They don't want to be confronted with their sin. They don't want Jesus to be Lord and Savior. They're willing to enjoy the get-together. But they still want the freedom to live their life on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday that they want. They want religious services. But they want to push their cart through King Supers and put the tequila into their basket and drink to numb the pain that's going on inside of them. They don't want to learn from him. They don't want to follow his plan. Again, Leslie Newbigin explains that Jesus, what Jesus sees and what we often fail to see that Jesus will reign on his terms. He is not going to reign on the people's terms, and he's certainly not going to reign on Satan's terms. Jesus, I'll make you the Lord of all of these things. There's just only one little catch. Here's what I want you to do. Bow down to me. And everything that you see, I'll give it to you. Do you remember Jesus' response? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Hey, I'm willing to make Jesus the Lord at Easter time. I'm willing to make Jesus the Lord on Sundays. But I want to keep Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday for myself. Again, Newbigin writes, and I quote, This is not faith on the part of the crowd, but unbelief. They haven't understood who Jesus is. Jesus will not be the instrument of any human enthusiasm or the symbol for any human program. To say Jesus is my king is true if the word king is wholly defined by the person of Jesus. It is false and blasphemous if Jesus is made instrument to a definition of kingship derived from somewhere else. Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to the captives, but he will not become the mascot for a people's movement of liberation at that very moment when they cry, Make Jesus king. 
It's splitting the air. Jesus abruptly disappears, leaving both the crowd and the disciples with no visible goal for their enthusiasm. And on that scene of disappointment, on that scene of disappointed hope, night falls. Jesus is alone with his Father. The crowds have left the hillside. The disciples are left without an answer to the question, where has he gone? They are, in every sense of the word, in the dark. And so you're surprised. Because you prayed for the miracle. You've realized that you need to include Jesus in the process. And you realize that he wants to be there on Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday. And you're willing to give him all of the really good stuff that you have. But what he wants is your unbelief, and your wickedness, and your sin. And and, and those things that you think are worthless and useless to everybody else. He'll take the really good things that you have and he'll take the really bad things that you have. Elizabeth Elliot lost her husband. He was tragically killed in South America when he was preaching the gospel. She wrote, If the only thing you have to offer is a broken heart, you offer a broken heart. So in a time of grief, the recognition that that this is material for sacrifice has been a very, very great strength for me. Realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am will be refused on the part of Christ. I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus his five loaves and his two fishes with the same feeling of the disciples when they said, What is the good of that with a crowd this big? in my emptiness and my depression and my darkness and my loneliness provide anything for anyone. She writes, So this grief, this loss, this suffering, this pain, whatever it is, which at the moment is God's means of testing my faith and bringing me to the recognition of who He is. That's the thing I'll offer. So what are you willing to give Him? Everything? Something? Nothing? You know what's interesting? Whatever you decide to give Him, when you give it to Him and you allow Him to work, He can provide a miracle. Do you believe that the Lord wants to help you? Then let Him. Will you give Him your little lunch? Will you give him your problem? Will you give him your impossible circumstance? Will you give him not just the good things, but will you give him the horrible things, the wicked things, your pride, your failure, your sins? 
your unbelief. Remember, Philip looked at the facts. Jesus looked at the Father. Andrew looked into the pantry. But he didn't look to the real provision. The merciful, glorious, powerful, living God. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person here, and in particular, Lord, for that person who needs a miracle. Lord, they may think it's a miracle of finances or a a miracle of hope, a miracle in their job, a miracle in their marriage, Lord, whatever the miracle may be. Lord, I pray that they would want something more than just their bellies full or their conscience clear or their religion satisfied but that they would look to you, Lord, the author and the finisher of faith. That, Lord, that they would place in your hands the very little that they have and that they would give thanks and praise and that they would rejoice not in what they don't have, but in all that they do have in Christ. Life, love, forgiveness, hope, a future. Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray that the darkness would become light and the emptiness would become full and that the guilty would be completely forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.